Okay, so what, what we're going to do tonight um, as we... Uh, As we look at our study on worship, we're going to be looking at the elements of worship. And if you recall from last time when Ben taught, you know, we talked about uh, different aspects of worship. And I probably ought to clarify, when we're talking about worship, we're talking about corporate worship, the body of Christ, the, the, the corpus of Christ, okay, or the body of Christ as we gather together. There's other kinds of worship, whether it be family worship, private worship, you know, worship is a way of life, you know, all that. But we're really talking about corporate worship. And we're talking about the elements of worship. And uh, last time, Ben mentioned the elements of worship, the form of worship, and the circumstances of worship. I don't know if those ring a bell to you or not. But the elements of worship are the parts of the worship service that God commanded us to do. For example, prayer or the reading of the Word of God or sacraments, things like that. The form of worship has to do with the nature of the elements or the form that the elements take in worship. So God commands us to pray, but what's that prayer supposed to look like? Well, the form might be that we pray in unison or we pray, you know, responsively or, you know, someone leads in, uh, in prayer. It might be a three-minute prayer or a ten-minute prayer. You know, the, the form might vary. But there's also a thing called the circumstances, and that has to do with worship more in general and not so much about a particular element. So, for example, God tells us to worship on the Lord's Day. When? Well, he doesn't tell us specifically when that has to be. It doesn't, you know, there's no word in Scripture that says worship at 10.35 a.m. or 5 p.m. on Sunday night or when, uh, but there's different circumstances. So anyway, but we're going to be talking about the elements or those parts of the worship service that God has commanded us to do. And so tonight we're going to focus really on the Word of God. So we're going to look at the reading of the Word, the preaching, and the hearing of the Word of God. And, um, you know, uh, feel free to, to jump in as you have questions or, or discussion points. But I want us, first of all, to look at Scripture, because we talked about last time about how God has established worship the way He wants us to worship. And so we're only to worship according to the things that he has laid out in his word. So let's just look at, you'll take your Bibles, and we'll look, first of all, um, at Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 9 through 13. Deuteronomy 31, verses 9 through 13. Now, while you're turning there, let me just say that, you know, the reading of Scripture has been at the heart of worship, you know, from the time of the Old Testament, as we will see. So uh, would somebody, uh, so we're going to look at a couple of Old Testament passages. Would somebody read that passage from Deuteronomy? 31 verses what? Yeah, 9 through 13. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release of the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Okay, so, so you see in this passage that, that God has commanded the Israelites from, from time to time that there should be a, uh, periods of time where they are reading the law of God before all of Israel that, that they might hear. And he says in verse 12, to assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of his law. So, uh, and, and their children as well that may not have known it. Um, so there is a sense in which we are to read God's law that the people might know it and might obey the Lord. Another Old Testament passage that might be even more familiar would be Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. <coughs> Nehemiah 8. Two and three. Actually, we could start with verse one, maybe one through three. 
what I mean? Yeah. <clears throat> so Ezra, the priest, brought the laws before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from the early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Okay. So once again, you have uh, a priest who is reading the law of God to, to his people, and it's to the whole assembly, men, women, and even those little ones as well, would sit and, and hear the word of God as, as it was read. So you see that in the Old Testament, but it also, uh, Christ did the same thing in the New Testament as well. If you'll look at Luke chapter 4, Verses 16 and 17 says, And he came to Nazareth, this is Jesus, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Anyway, then he unrolls that scroll, scroll and he reads where it is in Isaiah. But you see here, the practice of, of the reading of the prophets. And, and actually, they uh, in the New Testament time, they would read both from the law and from the prophets. And um, they, they read um, Lectio Continua, which meant just sort of uh, continuing on through a passage of Scripture. So uh, at, least, at least in terms of the law, they had it sort of laid out where they had sort of this reading schedule, if you want to call it that where you would read this much of the law, and uh, over a period of three years, they would end up reading the entire law of God. Now, the prophets that they read from, that was oftentimes left up to the preacher or to one who went in synagogue. So that was a little bit different, but there was a sense in which they would read that continuously. Um, and then we won't take the time to read it, but you can turn to, you know, you can write down if you're taking notes, Acts 13, uh, 14 through 43, Acts 13, 14 through 43, we see Paul doing the same thing. It was his practice to go in the synagogue and 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 they would read the law there as well. And then they asked Paul if he had anything he wanted to say. But the most uh, clear command that we see in scripture is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, where Paul, who, like I said, was in the practice of... Uh, Going to the synagogue where they uh, read the word of God. First Timothy 4.13, Paul is writing to Timothy, this young pastor, and talking to him about what he is to do as a minister of the gospel and uh, how he is to function in the church. And he says, uh, actually, I'll start in verse 11, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. And then he goes on, he talks about a little bit of that in terms of that example. He said, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So, um, you know, it's not just, Timothy, I want you to read the word of God, but I want you to publicly read the scriptures to his people. So, you know, I'm sort of beating this point in that scripture tells us that we are to read scripture. Now, you know, why Why do we make such a big deal about that? I mean, is it does it not make sense that Christians are going to read the Word of God in worship? I mean, it, it is the Word of God. You know, God speaking to his people as they are called together to assemble to worship the Lord. Is there anything more common sense than that? Right? I mean, it just, it just makes sense. Now... You know, I say that obviously somewhat sarcastically because many churches today don't do that. And unfortunately, I hate to say this, I've even been in PCA churches as we've been traveling where we'll be there and the only scripture that will be read will be the scripture that's read right before the sermon is preached. Now, that's not common, I don't think. I hope it's not. You know, I mean, it's not like I get out a lot on Sundays to, to go visit other churches. You know, but but I have seen even some PCA churches, but definitely in broader evangelicalism, 
it seems like uh, the presence of the Word of God is even somewhat diminished. Now, why might that be so? You know, especially in light of the Scripture being so clear about you know the reading of the Word of God. I think there's always a temptation to to be, to be wiser than God, to be wiser than the Scriptures, and to feel like you know we've we've all heard these stories. We know that what we really need is you know ten tips for whatever you know some some new faddish piece of insight you know to, to lead us and um, and I think it's a it's a it's a weird mixture of ignorance of what the scriptures say and then because we're ignorant of it pride that we think we know everything the Bible has to say you know yeah no, but also there's a time well, I think it's indirectly an attack on the sufficiency of scripture mm-hmm. Where the, if the people would never out if you ask them, do you think su- the scripture is insufficient? They would never say, oh, God, no, I don't think. It. But by the way they use it uh-huh. and not use it at times, they're sort of showing what they think, what they really think of it. Uh-huh. And, in, and also, if you think we're living in broadly outside the church, a culture where newer is generally better and older is just outdated. Uh-huh just the default position. So the Bible, how could the Bible address all the complex issues of our time? This goes back to sufficiency. So they have to feel like they have to, we have to kind of come up with some new thing to navigate the troubled modern Western world we're in. You know, it's like, so it's hard. We should be, this is an ancient book, but we're living in a culture that think ancient things are just stupid. So, and pastors and teachers have fallen prey to that. Some knowingly and probably a lot unknowingly. Yeah. I would say too that I think some of the problem has been that there's a group of people that have been misused the Bible mm-hmm. and stretch it and use a passage out of context and, and, and then it had also created people not so happy about it I think, you know, so which is not only not all the time, but that is also. I mean, the scripture is God's word, but it has to also be presented correctly, you know. Yeah. And um, so probably that's. I would say, in my experience, <coughs> it's probably somewhere between, probably um, in a lot of evangelical churches. Where if you press them, kind of like you were saying, if you press them on, you know, the sufficiency of scripture, they would say, oh yeah, it's it's, it's sufficient. But then they go against that with how they act. And it's usually more of a, they will just pull, pull something out of context to make it reinforce what they already wanted to say. So it's kind of a mix of. We think we're wiser. We think we know best how to say it, but you know, we'll go ahead and throw this scripture in because it kind of supports it, even though it doesn't really. Or you know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's a point they already wanted to make, and so sometimes they might pull in a scripture text to to try to emphasize that point. Really, yeah. You know, if you looked at it or. Well, there's reading, but how many people are truly qualified to actually teach through a text exegetically? Have they really been trained to go through four or five lines, whatever it is, three lines, whatever? And this is what this is saying in context. Not what I always thought it meant, not what I wanted. This is what this is saying. They actually do the legwork, grammar, languages, history you know, context in the book, context in scripture. That's a lot of work. And I don't know how many people are, one, are trained, and two, if they are, do they really want to do all that, where they can just take a verse and kind of, it's a springboard for whatever, how to fill in some blind spot. Yeah. Well, no, and that's a very good point. And, you know, in in one sense, we've, we've not even gotten there yet in terms of the preaching of the Word of God. We're just sort of talking about the reading of the Word of God. But, but even at that, 
you know, so we're going to come back to what you're saying just in just a minute. But even when we're talking about the reading of the Word of God, uh, I passed out a sheet from the Westminster Larger Catechism. And uh, let's just think that this is just a, a doc. I mean, it is a document that men wrote, but they it's a summation of what Scripture teaches. I went ahead and gave you the Scripture references, too, you know, uh, for the different questions and answers. But in the Larger Catechism, which is oftentimes a little less known, uh, questions 156 to 160 sort of talks about the place of the Word of God, particularly in the corporate worship. And uh, the first question, 156, said, is the Word of God to be read by all? And the answer is, although we are not to be permitted to read the Word publicly to the congregation, yet all sorts of people are bound to read it apart by themselves and with their families, to which end the Holy Scriptures are to be translated out of the original into vulgar languages. Now that word vulgar is not what we think of when we think of vulgar. It means the ordinary or the common language of the people. And so, you know, it's it's something to where it should be read in the language of the people that they might understand. But the point being here, and, and if you go back to look at uh, Deuteronomy that we looked at, it was the priests that were to read the word of God. Nehemiah, he was a scribe, but he was also the priestly line the red lap that Jesus Christ, who was a, a rabbi, you have Paul, who was an apostle, and Paul uh, commending Timothy, who is a minister of the gospel. There's a sense in which the Word of God, you know, we need to, you know, we can become so familiar with the practice and worship of, okay, it's time to sing a song, it's time to read from the Word, it's time to hear a sermon, that it just almost becomes like any other book. And, you know, even for ministers, and I, I say this probably more confessing my sin than anything, that, you know, it can be tempting to stand up and to preach and to, to lapse into thinking maybe more like you're teaching a lesson or giving a lecture or even preaching a sermon, but almost like that is coming from you rather than the fact that you are handling the Word of God itself. There ought to be a sense of trembling and a sense of humility in regards to that. And so as we come to the reading of the Word of God at Kirk of the Plains, you know, it is my hope and prayer that as, as we read that, you know, it's, it's a sense in which God is speaking to the congregation and that God in Scripture seems to lay out those men who are officers in the church to be reading that Word to the congregation, those men that are ordained and, and set aside for that. So I know in Kirk of the Plains it's going to be a sense in which it will be either the teaching elders or the ruling elders that would be participating in terms of, of reading that word. And that's not because those men are better readers or because, you know, they, they've arrived. But it's really a sense of just helping us to, to remember that what's being read to us is, is the word of God and that he's doing that through his church. Now, that sort of leads us to, to how the word of God should be read. Here again, you know, it can just almost be just uh, like, oh, yeah, okay, what's the scripture reading for today? Let me just sit and look that up real quick and let's, you know, let's read it. But question 157 of the larger catechism says, how is the word of God to be read? The holy scriptures are to be read with a high and reverent esteem of them, with a firm persuasion that they are the very word of God and that he only can <coughs> enable us to understand them with desire to know, believe, and obey the will of God revealed in them with diligence and attention to the matter and scope of them with meditation, application, self-denial, and prayer. Now, man, we could spend a series just on that one question, but you know, as you read that and as you as you think about those things, and you know, uh, maybe verses like uh, Psalm 19, you know, come to to mind that God's word is seen as 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 precious as gold. It tastes sweeter than honey. You know, all. all all those different ways that the psalmist describes, you know, the word of God. You know, first of all, he starts talking about God's revelation through his creation, but then he talks about God's revelation through his word. You know, uh, how... Can I ask a <coughs> sure. silly Go question? Ahead. When it says, how is the word of God to be read, that how is more in what mindset should it be yeah. read? With what mindset? Yes. 
I'm thinking like with what attitude, what are you saying about it? Right. Yeah. Not the the voice you use right. or sitting right. or standing down or <laughs> it's Yeah. Does that does that apply to the the one who's hearing the word being read? As much as to the one actually reading aloud? Well it seems like question one fifty six is kind of saying two things. You know, on the one hand, not everyone is called to read the word of God publicly in the congregation, like you said. That's a task that's given to the leadership of the church really. And but then the second part of the question is, but yeah, everybody's supposed to read mm-hmm. it apart by themselves with their families, you know, as part of how we translate into these languages. And so it seems like this would apply both to the elder reading in Sunday, you know, in, in the worship service and to us reading in our family worship or private worship as well. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go. You know, that it doesn't necessarily so much speak to how we hear the Word of God. And we are going to talk about that here in just a minute. But this does talk about how we are to do it, even in our our personal worship time. You know, there's there's a sense in which there is to be that, uh, that reverent esteem for the Word of God, a firm persuasion that it is the very Word of God. You know, with diligence and attention to the matter and scope of them, meditation, application, self-denial, and prayer. So you can see that even in the sense of reading the Word of God, it's a much more active, and there's a, a, a whole lot more that's involved in terms of the attitude and even the practice of application and prayer, of self-denial, meditation, you know, those kind of things as well. Um, anyway, any, any questions about... Uh, reading the Word of God. One one thing I will say because um, it's some, it's a practice that that you have uh, that you have seen is that you know when the Word of God is is uh, read from an elder to the congregation, like I said before, that's God speaking to His people through His Word, and you know in one sense uh, the reading of the Word of God is the most pure sense in which God is speaking to His people. You know, there's no interpretation of man. It's just reading the Word of God. Uh, but uh, having um, ha, just lost my train of thought where I was going to go with that. It was a really good thought too. Uh, sure. I mean, we, we need to speak it in the common language, but we need to not make it so common that there's a sense of flippancy towards the Word of God as well. So, you know, that that is true. That That's a very good balance. Uh, well, for the sake of time, and, and, you know, I don't want to draw too strong of a distinction between the reading of the Word of God and, and the preaching of the Word of God, um, because as, as you look at passages and stuff, you'll see that, you know, they're oftentimes tied together. I mean, even go back to the, the Nehemiah passage, uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. We read verses 1 through 3, but if we would uh, read on down through verse 5, if somebody would reread that, 
And uh, one through five. Uh, yeah, read one through five. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women, and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And as for the scribes, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Matthiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah and Mishael, Malchijah, Hashum, Hashabadan, Zechariah, and Meshalam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. Okay, go ahead and read through eight. Oh, through eight, sorry. Yeah. No, that's my fault. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Keladai, Keladai, Azariah, Jozebad, Hananiah, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Okay, so there wasn't just a sense of uh, reading the law of God, but there was also a sense of, of preaching or expounding or teaching uh, what the Word of God said as well. And, and it was sort of believed that what was taking place here, <coughs> here is, is that Ezra read some, and then the Levites would explain to the people the things that were said. And then Ezra would read some more, and then the Levites would explain to the people the things that were going. So there is a sense in which you see the reading of the Word of God, but also included in that as well is the preaching of the Word. And we very much see in the prophets the preaching of the Word of God, uh, even in Jesus' own ministry. Uh, look at Mark chapter 1, verse 38. You know, Jesus went through, you know, the villages and the town and the countryside. Um, you know, we could pull out many examples or whatever where he was preaching the Word of God. But in Mark 1, uh, verse 38, we read these words. And he said to them, uh, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I, that is why I came out. Um, that's why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. That's not the verse I was looking for. Yeah, no, I mean, that was. I mean, he, he is preaching uh, the word of God. Um, <coughs> well, the point that I, I want us to see, though, is is that he, uh, as he was preaching, his, his, uh, his purpose in his preaching was to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a sense of, of redemption that... Um, his earthly ministry was gospel proclamation or preaching uh, or heralding the good news of the kingdom of God. Um, anyway, uh, we'll, we'll come back to that. But so, so you see that sense of preaching. You also see uh, as well 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. 1 Corinthians 1, 21. You know, Paul was uh, preaching... In, uh, in Corinth, and this was a town that exalted great orators. You know, they, they really valued a good uh, person who could speak to them in such a way that would persuade them. And uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.20, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since... In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
So uh, there, there is a sense in which not only does God come to, um, to use the preaching of the word of God to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God, but also to, to show the foolishness of the world as well. And, and I think we still sort of see that today in the church, uh, the sense in which people oftentimes think that preaching is foolish. I mean, how many times have you heard something like, well, you know, <coughs> people just don't really communicate that way anymore. I mean, we're, we're much more uh, a visual people. You know, it's really more about, um, you know, videos and stuff like that. People don't do the, the written word or the spoken word as much. It's more visual effects. So, you know, we really need to probably try to change our methodology. Sort of going back to somebody said something about it being outdated, you know, and stuff like that. And so there's a sense in which even today, I think, we hear in the church, uh, once again, why we don't come out and say preaching is foolish. That's sort of the implication that that is given there, that preaching doesn't necessarily, um, you know, doesn't meet the mark. It doesn't draw in the people. It doesn't accomplish the purpose that it once did. Um, but if you look at what uh, God's word says, you know, God is very clear that we are to preach. In First Timothy, or excuse me, Second Timothy four two. Somebody read Second Timothy four one and two. Yeah, so, you know, Paul tells Timothy just very clearly, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And so uh, preaching is, is what we are to do in the church. Here again, it is proclaiming the, the word of God, and it's not only reading the word of God, but making sure that the word of God is understood as well. So you can see that those two things go together. So how is the word of God to be preached by those that are called thereunto? Uh, question 159 of, of the larger catechism. They that are called to labor in the ministry of the word are to preach sound doctrine diligently in season and out of season, plainly, not in the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and power, faithfully making known the whole counsel of God, wisely applying themselves to the necessities and um, capacities of the hearers, zealously with fervent love to God and the souls of his people, sincerely aiming at his glory and their conversion, edification, and salvation. And so you can see there uh, a sense of, um, well, let me just ask, maybe before I make my statement, let me ask this. What is the difference between preaching and teaching? Especially as you look at this um, definition or, or this exhortation here of how someone should preach the word of God. What would be the difference between like what you see here printed on this page and what you think of when you think of teaching? This line in demonstration of the spirit and the power. Um, not that the Holy Spirit isn't present when you're doing a Bible study. Um, or that power that's given. But I think, you know, if, if teaching is focuses on information, preaching focuses on reformation or transformation. And so I think the difference is, so even like in this study tonight, you know, we're, we're learning a lot of things and we're going through a lot of texts and they're probably things that all of us are feeling like we're being reminded of or convicted of or we're learning of for the first time. And so there's points of application along the way. But 
preaching and what you're talking about here, you know, to preach sound doctrine, to do so with a kind of passion and precision and persistence. And there's there's a kind of clear, this is what this sermon is about. This is what this text is about. This is what God's word is calling you to, you know, which I think is part of why preaching come, you know, draws from a particular passage of scripture and not just kind of truth in general. And so it's, it, while you're going to learn information in a sermon, you're going to experience reformation in the Bible study, there seems like there's a, an emphasis shift. And so the tone is different and the tools you use are different. And, you know, it can be a subtle thing, but it is If I was going to use this question, I'd take that, that last line aiming at, and it's what it is, at, at their conversion, edification, and salvation. So if you're doing a sermon, there's an assumption somebody in this group is unconverted. And there will be the gospel preached and they, they have opportunity to hear and believe. Edification would be for the, you know, I mean, I, I've seen, I almost wonder if edification, sanctification, sanctification yeah. has salvation there, which I wonder if they also don't mean sanctification. I don't know if they use it differently, but but Sunday school or some sort of just teaching, say like Sunday school, you're not necessarily going at conversion. It could be on a topic of the Bible and you know, what does the Bible say about marital relationships? What does the Bible say about money? Or what is it? Where it's not necessarily going to be, you know, okay, now every head bowed at the end, you know, you want to let Jesus into your heart. There's there, there's transformation in the in the Bible study and in Sunday school, but there you're not conversion probably isn't as much in view when you teach. There's probably going to be more topical, or even if you're going through a book, you're. I mean, it could there could be that element, but it doesn't necessarily have to be <coughs> as much. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I fully buy into the part of like the preaching does not have much transformation because I still feel that's like, not, no, not exactly, that's yeah. what I'm afraid of stretching it, you know, because it's very hard not to be affected by the information that you learn. So, so, but I think... But I think what I'm saying is, so like right now I'm teaching a Sunday school class on hymns, which will have information that should, but I'm not, I don't have one thing that says that I'm pressing that it's like, I think, in, I think in a sermon, God is speaking through the preacher and through his word to call people to account. And they need to respond in some tangible way or they're not being faithful. Which is not necessarily true of every lesson that's taught in a Sunday school context. Or, you know, sometimes there will be. But you could faithfully teach a lesson that's simply giving information and background about this or that truth or, or doctrine or something. If a preacher just gives that kind of information, he's not actually preached. Can I say this a different way? Yeah. Not only could the, the 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 teacher be faithful if he conveys that information and there's not a response, but the hearers could be faithful to hear that, and and they do need to respond, but there there wouldn't be that pointed, you know, today you make this decision, and I'm not just talking about the decision for salvation. It might be whatever the passage brings to bear. So, um, yeah. Anyway, I don't. If you mm -hmm. want, yes. I, I I can see it more as that preaching is more emotion focused. You need to be angry. You need to do this. You need to, you know, and just and then more like go like goes to the soul. Like a, yeah. I kind of and teaching I, is more of like just giving the facts. It kind of reminds me of, um, like we were talking in last uh, quarter's Sunday school class about the the head, the affections, and the will kind of all being at play. And so, kind of yeah. like, you know, a, a Bible study faithfully done could just be kind of intellectual information. Mm -hmm that you could get assent to without it really affecting your affections. Right, right. So are you saying yeah. more like the sermon kind of, is yeah. going to kind of give information like but feelings, also so to speak. Yeah. go deeper to right. influence your affection perhaps right. or 
drive you then to... And I'm not sure the definition of affection. Uh, or to, to change the will. But I mean, that sounds like what I'm, Yeah, that sounds like... But what we don't no. want to say... Is that it doesn't do it. No, what we don't want to say right. is because if you want if you want to really say the truth and it's just about feelings, then you can go to the churches and they have the demon right. rights and right. all this about yeah. feelings. You know? <laughs> but that's not what preaching is, not right. manipulation yeah. of emotions. Right. So that's what we're not saying. So, I mean, that obviously emotions are <coughs> a response of what God has convicted and part. I, mean, I think emotions is maybe, not emotions, because feelings are they're not that. But more of, like, the heart. It's probably yeah. the will. Yeah. It's the will is probably what you're, you're right. getting at. And I would say, too, with teaching, right. it's not that it excludes all three of those things. Right. It just may not come to bear as heavily on all three of those yeah. points. Yeah. You know, I, so. I, I think in any, whatever you're doing, teaching or preaching, you don't want to mm-hmm. bypass right. the mind. Right. Mm-hmm. Because then you're just getting into propaganda. Right. And it's just stirring up emotion to get people to feel a certain way mm-hmm. or act a certain way or just you know a, a political speech it's rah rah go be better you know followers yeah. of jesus and okay what information what can you give me some facts behind this or just mm-hmm. so they're, they're especially and especially in our age and i'm sure it's pretty much timeless <laughs> throughout you know history focusing on the emotion of just Someone getting up there, raising their voice and yelling, and oh, he's excited! Boy, this must be great. And like, okay, he hasn't said anything. Yeah. He hasn't really expounded the text. I don't understand. You're saying that. that. Yeah, I didn't mean. I think feelings is the wrong right. word. Yeah. But the mind has to be in play. Right. All the time. We can't just. But we. We never should be shutting off our mind. Just going. Okay. I'm just yeah. Gonna feel. Right. Well, it's a, that's not good. It's a little bit too, though. You know, where the the emotions can be easily whipped up, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, in one yeah. sense, but you know they can. So therefore, it easily dissipates as well, and there's not necessarily conviction and uh, about you know the things that we necessarily feel. But you know, when we have our mind and our emotions and our will involved in that, then that changes oftentimes long lasting. Right thinking. Used to right emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I was maybe that's right emotions. Yeah. Did you say? Yeah. Seriously. I, I keep, I keep <laughs> thinking about um, Jonathan Edwards, and I haven't read much of Jonathan Edwards. We read a little from Voices of the Past, but um, in high school, reading Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, I'd always been kind of taught and told that the Puritans were like. You know, hellfire and brimstone, like, <laughs> just uh, the Great Awakening was the result of these, you know, elaborate, it, not elaborate, but just very um, theatrical, almost, um, you know, pastors preaching the word in a way that like scaring people it was just yeah. sweeping, sweeping people up into this, you know, frenzy, frenzy and hysteria, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then reading sinners in the hands of an angry god <laughs> certainly there was passion mm-hmm. but it wasn't it really didn't come across that way and then later on kind of finding out that he actually didn't preach that way he was not monotone but definitely not a theatrical performer and yet people were moved he read it from a manuscript and he was not so you know, he wasn't a great orator in that sense. Obviously, he had a way with words in terms of he was still eloquent. His writing was good. But people took the emotion and they kind of just but focused it, on that and said that he. But it, you know, it was faithful preaching. And obviously, this isn't saying that there isn't there isn't a gifting or an ability given to a preacher to preach in a way that makes it clear and kind of will be effective, but that's because of what God is doing through the preacher and the Word, right? I think think when you're preaching, you have to ask yourself, okay, was the gospel preached during this sermon at some point? Mm -hmm. Was faith and repentance preached? Mm -hmm. That would seem necessary in all sermons. Someone happened to walk in here from the outside, an unconverted person who's been here 10 years, and this is the first time their ears are open. Will they actually hear the gospel? Mm-hmm. Teaching, Sunday school, maybe you will, maybe you won't. Right. 
Mm -hmm. So a church could survive with preaching and not teaching, mm -hmm. but it couldn't survive with teaching and not preaching. Mm -hmm. It would just be sort of seminary lectures on what's ecclesiology, and then we'll never hear the gospel or eschatology. I mean, you may touch on it at times, but sermon needs the gospel, and I think that's that end part of conversion, edification, and salvation. The gospel is part of that. Yeah. I mean, it's, you shouldn't walk out there and look at so how am I right with God? Yeah. I'm not sure. And see, so, so there is that sense, though, with the preaching of the Word of God that, um, you know, it is that sense of being pointed and that sense of aiming at the intellect and the emotion and the will. And so, therefore, there is to be a response, you know, on the part of the people to God speaking to them. I mean, imagine if you would, you, I mean, I, not, I know this has never happened with any parents here or aunts and uncles here that has nieces and nephews, but you tell your kids something, let's say like, you know, go pick up your shoes. And they just stand there and they stare at you. And you said, did I, did you not hear me? I said, go pick up your shoes. And they just look at you like they have no ears on their head, you know, <laughs> and you just get very frustrated, you know, but, but how often do we do the same thing with God that we come into his house and it's a, you know, it's maybe a sense of even uh, falling into the trap of just going through, you know, the service and, and hearing the things and, and maybe even somewhat, I mean, I think with this group and the people that I know in here, you come to worship very seriously and you come to, to hear. But, you know, um, he, uh, as we look at the larger catechism question number 160, the very last one on the sheet, it said, it is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, with preparation and prayer Examine what they hear by the scriptures. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God. Meditate and confer of it. Hide it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. Boy, I'll tell you what. I, it just is driving me nuts that we're, you know, we don't have more time uh, to, to go through this. But, you know, as much as I think we give diligence to come to the worship service with seriousness, I have to admit, brothers and sisters, I am convicted by the things that, that are said here, even as a minister of the gospel, you know, to, to come to hear the word of God preach that, you know, I may attend with it upon diligence and preparation and prayer. I mean, does that characterize us that we have come into the worship service having already prepared for worship? having prepared to hear the word of God, maybe read the text, maybe thought about that, prayed about that, you know, examine what they hear by the scriptures, even as we're hearing the word of God preached. And after we hear the word of God preached, that we're looking at it in terms of other scriptures and receiving that truth with, as was said earlier, with faith and love and meekness and readiness of mind as the word of God. And then even after hearing the word of God, meditating on it, conferring of it. What do they mean by conferring of it? Uh-huh. Yep. Hiding it in your hearts and bringing forth the fruit of it in their lives. You know, is there a sense in which we, as we hear the word of God preached, that we don't feel satisfied, you know, until we see that fruit lived out in our lives? Now, of course, that's as the spirit of God works in our hearts. You know, so it's not like I just go, mm, I got to get fruit to come out, you know, as a result of the sermon. You know, it, but it is a sense in which pleading and praying for the Holy Spirit to, you know, work in our lives such that these things would be a reality. So. I think you broke my life. I think I did too. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. I think it's interesting in this part about people who hear it. How many times, I just think, I, my experience is, I could sum it up in four words. Right doctrine, wrong text. I've sat under, not every time, but many times, Sermon after sermon after sermon, where this is true and it's somewhere in the Bible, it's just not the text that this gets in. Uh -huh. And then afterwards, someone will come up and say, oh, that was a really good sermon. And I'm thinking, no, it really wasn't because that wasn't in that text. And you didn't tell us you were going over here where that doctrine is correct and true and in the Bible, but it's not in that text. Yeah. And I wonder how often do we do that and go, okay, 
Yeah, that's true. Is that here? Yeah. Is that what these words are saying? Right. Well, be- let's let's talk about that a minute because that does happen. You know, so so how are we uh, to listen to the word of God preached when something like that happens? Does that sort of let us off the hook from the things that we read here, or you know, is there a different way we're to respond to that? What? I think the last one you said attentively, mm-hmm. and it's, it's interesting because I think trying to teach that you know the kids to listen attentively, uh-huh. and we need to listen with discernment. You know, like, uh-huh. again, and if you know the word of God, you say, okay, this is true, this is not true. Not by me, because the word of God is perfect. Humans are yes. not, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, even I mean, even though the preachers want to do a good job, they're still humans, you know. So as long as they stay in the text, then you're going to be a good job. <laughs> the problem is when they start deviating, because, then, you know, they're not perfect, you know. But we have to be attentive and discerning. But I would, I don't know, along with that, I think, at the same time, it's kind of the work of God in one. For in us, you know, I mean, we can try to be attentive, but at the same time, it's the Holy Spirit that helps us to put in our hearts attentiveness. Mm-hmm. Because, like, even, I mean, if, I, I, I'm, not, I'm trying to find the balance between the, what degree that attentiveness comes from our will, but I think it's also the work of God in our hearts. You know, because I can expect my kids to be attentive, even though I want them to be attentive. God has to reach their hearts, and if there's something that is there, then that's, then we are attentive. So uh, we have to pray that we can be attentive. Right. You know? yeah. it, it seems like with that kind of situation where you sit and you hear a sermon, and let's say let's say you are, you know, you you've been diligent, you've prepared, you've prayed, you've sought the Holy Spirit, you know. And you listen to a sermon, and it's like, okay, they're, they're saying this, and it's true, you know, but not, they didn't really deal with the text in front of you, you know. Um, it seems like there's three kind of things. One is, there might be a place to, especially if this is something where it's like a pattern, yeah. where maybe you do go and, you know, talk to the pastor and make sure that, make sure that, first off, that you're not misinterpreting the text, that you're not missing something. Say, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really reading this and seeing this, you know, can you help me understand how you're seeing that? And, you know, maybe you do have that conversation. That's kind of one whole issue about whether or not to do that and what that looks like. But then the other two things is, okay, even even at that, even that kind of, you know, less than ideal scenario where, where the preacher might have missed the meaning, God is still graciously put before you his truth in two ways. One, by the preacher still saying something that is true. Mm-hmm. And that truth is still something that we are called to examine, to receive with faith, love, meekness, readiness of mind, to meditate on, to talk about it, to hide it in our hearts, to bring forth the fruit of it in our lives. But then we also have, okay, but then this text is actually talking about this truth. Mm-hmm. And so we can also go and, you know what I mean? It's almost mm-hmm. in a sense you're getting, you're getting two sermons, two sermons <laughs> you know. That's not to say that it doesn't matter if the preacher gets it right or not. I'm not minimizing no. the importance of that. But even when you're in a church, because I think we've all been in churches, either long-term or just visiting, where you're like, man, that was really not what that text was about. Or sometimes they preach a sermon, like they like read a text, and then they just preach a sermon where they didn't even try to connect to the text. So like you said, it's just a kind of perfunctory thing. And it's, I tend to leave feeling very frustrated, and part of that can be justified if a preacher's not doing his job. But I think our, where our hearts should go, if we're kind of really following this biblical model, is to say, okay, you know, I need to be looking at my responsibilities and not just how he didn't do his job, you know. And there are ways, even with a, a missed-the-mark sermon, where you can actually still grow and benefit from. Because, like you said, if God's Word has been read, and, you know, God's truth has been proclaimed, then we as God's people can be fed and built up in that. And so, you know, that's probably where we need to try to fight at the start. And then maybe we go to... One of the contexts of the text is just examine everything, retain the good, everything. So it's... Yeah. It's the intention. I'm translating, so I don't know if it's retain good, examine everything. Do you remember that? It's been a long time. Yeah, I mean... 
Yeah, I cannot recall the reference to that verse, but I, you know, Philippians does talk about that about thinking about the things that are good and pure. You know, just even the Bereans in Acts seventeen eleven. You know, they examine to make sure that the things Paul said were scripture. But Greg, you seem like you wanted to say no, something. I, should, I think Ben, ben kind of got to it. Okay. If what the person just says is true, we still have an obligation to go. Okay, it's not here. It's over there. Right. And I have to deal with this. Yeah. You know, now, so it's not, we can't just focus on how wrong the teaching was or the preaching was. It's just, okay. You know, covetousness is still wrong. Yeah. It's not in that text. It's over here. (laughs) You still got to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. So I can't get off the hook. Well, that's not about covetousness. That's about whatever, something else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you still have to deal with it. I think it isn't a good point, though, and this is probably harder, really awkward if it's habitual. And you don't want to feel like you're playing stump the chump with the preacher. It's like, okay, um, I don't know where do you think that that said that. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to tear the person down, but you also like, okay, it's hard because in a sense that person is modeling how a text should be taught. Yeah. And let's say 10% of the people in the room can spot that that's not really, he's not really doing that. Others might actually think, oh, yeah, he was fine. Yeah. And that's not good. I think, I think cool, one yeah, of the, yeah. the things, and I like even when you start the preaching and the first sermon and everything, I think it is, I like that you talk about when we're starting a church, but kind of like when we analyze and see others, you know, to have that heart or that crime <coughs> for when we see mistakes or errors, you know, I think, I, I, uh, I'm sure you ordered it better, <laughs> you know, but I think it's good. We have to be discerning. We have to examine everything. But at the same time, if we have a sermon word of God, we're going to do it with grace and understanding that God is at work and with compassion and with even sadness, yes, but even like our frustrations have to be holy in some way. I don't know if that sounds, makes sense, you know, but, you know, uh, because... Uh, Christ died for all of us, you know, and so in, I think it's part of discerning and how we discern and judge. Yeah. I mean, we have to be right, you know, good, but also grace, like, you know, how right. God does it, you know. So you've been praying for that ministry before you go talk with him or, you know, yeah, so there should be a sense of agonizing over him and praying for him and then, True you love, know, you yes. know, the love of God, you know, right. because otherwise... I mean, we're even worse. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Well, I don't, I, we're way late, I know that. The difference we, between preaching and teaching is that in teaching, students participate and change and Whether <laughs> <laughs> in the preaching, the preacher no. can go quiet. direct and <laughs> to, to the point and keep the time. And preachers still can't get done on time, yeah. so you know, I don't know what the deal is. Okay, but I, this is what I want us to walk away from with this, though, is a couple points. One is, is the fact that when we meet for corporate worship, God is meeting with us and he is speaking to us. And so we ought to come to worship with a sense of expectancy to hear from him and also in preparation to receive that word. So there's a sense in which we don't just come to worship on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon or, or whatever, but there's a sense of, you know, I need to get ready to come to meet with God. You know, we've, you've all heard the illustration, you know, well, if you're ever going to meet the Queen of England, you know, would you just walk in in your jeans or would you prepare yourself? You know, things like that. You know, and I know it's an overused illustration, but there is a sense in which, you know, we would. We would probably act a little bit differently. We'd probably dress a little bit differently. And so, you know, there is a sense of preparing our hearts and uh, to come into the presence of God. And then, you know, there's a sense of while we're hearing the word to do so attentively. And then even after we have heard the word of God, then to, to take that to heart. But you know what? Even if the preacher preaches the worst sermon in the world, let's just even say he doesn't even preach the text. You know, he didn't even preach the word of God. So you walk away going, all he did was expound an illustration. <laughs> if there is at least the reading of the word of God, and we have given ourselves not only the attention that we see here about what is required of those that hear the word preached, but if we apply this to the word read as well, we have still heard from the Lord. And we can still you know, uh, 
be challenged and we can take those things to heart and obey him as well. You know, I hope that won't ever happen at Kirk of the Plains, you know, uh, but I'm sure there will be some stinkers every once in a while, you know, I understand that. But uh, hopefully the word will always be preached. But uh, anyway. I'm not worried so. about that. I would just think if that happens, you guys were hit on the head with something. <laughs> <laughs> if you came in, then I, yeah. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard people say about Spurgeon that he was a great preacher, but a lot of times, a lot of what he said wasn't in the text he was in. Yeah. It was a bit of a springboard. I don't know if it was Carl Truman or somebody else. It was like, and he's well known. He's, I mean, he's, you know, Oh, yeah. They were like, but he's Baptist. <laughs> I've heard Daryl Hart say that even uh, Gay Garcination, yeah. if you listen to him, it's like, yeah, that wasn't in that text yeah. either. So, yeah. you know, these are smart men that yeah. on a regular diet, you're not necessarily going to get, wait a minute, where is, that's not here, you know, so yeah. it doesn't excuse it, but it's, it's, no one's immune to it. Yeah, that's very true. Well, let me, let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study, and I do thank you, Lord, for students and for the comments that, that uh, are, was made tonight. Uh, Father, I do pray that you would really work in our hearts to uh, really consider the things that you have told us from your word, the commands uh, to, to read your word uh, privately, and I pray that that would not only be a practice in our worship services, but in our families and in our private time as well, and that we would read your word uh, appropriately and correctly, and that, Father, we would take the heart the word and that it would be precious to us, uh, but not just your word, but God, you, it's your word, and so we just pray that we would rejoice and worship and praise you, that that would just be characteristic in our lives and in our families. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and pray these things in your name. Amen. Um.